Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. After about six weeks of a hiatus, coming back to look at this great book, Hebrews chapter 12. I got back yesterday morning early, very early, from Orlando, where it wasn't snowing. Uh, And uh, I was there Thursday afternoon, Friday at a conference, the first conference of the Paideia Center for Theological Discipleship. It's a spin-off from the Trinity debate of 2016, and uh, it consists really of two things. One, one is reading groups. We had one here at 10th in the fall. We were reading St. Gregory Nazianzus' five theological orations, and that was a very interesting discussion group. Uh, and then this spring, we're going to be looking at Martin Luther's catechism. So the, the whole one of the, one of the goals of the coming out of the Trinity issue is to retrieve the resources of the church from the past for the present, taking the great things that God has done in the past and seeing that those who are dead still speak because we're part of one church and uh, so we'll be giving you more information about that. You can sign up for the reading group. There are three, usually three nights uh, uh, devoted to the subject. Amen. That's, that's all I have to say about that. Let's, uh, let's read from Hebrews then, chapter 12, verse 12. Let's hear the Word of God. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, we truly say that at this section, at the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer is describing what it means to live as a believer in the world. He really begins this in chapter 11, because for the writer, being a believer is defining of what the people of God are, no matter where they turn up chronologically, from the beginning of time till the end of time. It is defining of God's people that they are believers. And so therefore, in chapter 11, where we're having a description of what it is to be a believer and what it's like to be a believer All of the believers selected are believers who believed before Jesus came. They believed looking forward to Jesus, but their faith was as strong as ours who look back to Jesus. And we learned from that something about the Christian life. We learned that the life of faith is a journey, a journey from where God finds us to the heavenly city, to the New Jerusalem, to the country that God has promised to us, to heaven itself. That our life is a journey from where God finds us to heaven. 
That's what it was for Abraham and Moses and all of these other great characters there. And that's what it is for you and I in our daily life. Then in chapter 12, the metaphor changes, though the idea is the same. Here the metaphor is taken from the Olympic Games and from the gymnasium. Uh, To follow Jesus means that it is a, a long movement in the same direction towards a goal, towards heaven, towards God, and en route towards that destination. There are all kinds of hazards to be avoided, effort to be expended, and we need to keep going along that trail. You can see this life, the way he describes it. Look at verse 1, the race set before you. Or verse 4, it is a struggle against sin. That's what the Christian life looks like, feels like. And it calls for perseverance, he says. It it requires that we listen to the exhortations of God's Word. And in all of this, whenever anything comes across our path that is a challenge or a difficulty or a trial, we are to see in that the discipline of our Heavenly Father who disciplines us for our good. Verse 10. So the Christian life is a challenging life. If you don't already know that, it's because you're not yet a Christian. It is a challenging life. And yet the, the writer has encouraged us by reminding us of three things. He reminds us that we are not alone. That's why he starts in chapter 12. We are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses that there are many who have gone before us and they've experienced dangers, toils, and snares that we can barely imagine. In that long list of people mentioned in chapter 11, these people did not know what we know about the Savior. They believed in the Savior, but they didn't have the same knowledge that you and I have. And yet in spite of that, they trusted in Him, they served Him, they lived for Him throughout their lives. We're not alone Others have trod this path before us. Even before Christ came, there were those who were living by faith until they died. And the writer tells us in verse 40 of chapter 11 that neither they nor we will be perfect without each other in Christ. We are not alone, he says. Secondly, he says, we follow the Master. Look at verse 1. Let us run looking to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. As we think of Jesus in his human, with his human name and human nature, as we think of him while he was here on earth, what does he do? He lives a life of faith. He believes God. Even when he's hanging on the cross and he cries out those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's directing our attention to Psalm 22 from which those words come. He wants us to read on and to see that in spite of that sense of, of, of desertion on the cross, he is still believing God. He still believes that God is with him, that God is sustaining him, and that God will not let him go. He lives and he dies as a believer. Not only that, but he learned obedience. Just the way you and I learn obedience in our lives, so in his human nature, Jesus learns what it was to obey. 
from the things that he suffered, that is, from the things that he encountered, the trials, the troubles, the temptations, the tests of life, the ordinary things of life that disturb us, that want to trip us up, and that act as challenges to us. Jesus learned obedience from those things, and, says the writer, as we've seen, so should we. But then the third thing that he tells us for our encouragement is not only that we're not alone, not only that we follow the Master, but that we rank as children. We rank as children. Look at verse 6. The Lord disciplines those He loves. We are loved by the Lord. Or verse 7. God is treating you as sons and heirs, we might add. Or verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. God is an active parent in the lives of His people. But in all that, as a parent, He sends to us, as a father, He puts on our path. Or He permits to come across our path. He uses that in His love to train us and to help us to mature in our relationship with Him. Those trials and difficulties, even the temptations that the devil means to trip us up and destroy us, God overrules and uses them to build up our moral muscles, to build up our spiritual muscles. He uses them in a for, as a form of resistance training. That's what he means in verse 11. Those who have been trained by it. It's a Greek word, gymnasium. It's as if God is not only our Father, but He's our instructor. He has a regime of exercises that He sends into our lives from, from day to day and moment by moment, and He uses those things to build us up in our faith. And we'll understand that if we give heed to the word of exhortation, as it says back in verse 5. In other words, what we learn in church, what we read in Scripture is the explanation of what is going on in our day-to-day -day life and in our day-to-day -day existence. When something happens, we, ask, we have to ask the question, why is this happening to me? What have I to learn from this? What is God saying to me right now about my life and what I need to learn? It may not be a harsh word. It may not be a heavy word, but it will be an explanatory word. We will be able at the end of the day to say with the psalmist, it was good for me to be afflicted. But here's the thing. God is very realistic in his dealings with us. And he knows that all of this difficulty, trial, trouble, looking at our life and so on, trying to keep going to the end of the journey, he knows that this can be exhausting and demoralizing for us as people. And that's where verse 12 and following kick in. Here, here are words then that are addressed to those who are demoralized and exhausted with trying to be a Christian, trying to be a believer with all of the things that life throws at us. Well, he asks us, first of all, he encourages us, first of all, to get our act together. Therefore, he says, following on from what he said about the life of the Christian as a pilgrimage and as a contest, Lift your dripping hands and strengthen your weak knees. 
The drooping hands, the wobbly knees suggest exhaustion. They suggest dispiritedness, discouragement. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses this passage, and he illustrates it from his background as a medical doctor. Uh, He uses as an illustration those who suffer from rheumatism, where chronic pain and discomfort often leads a person who's suffering to compensate by nursing and protecting the painful parts. Discouragement and exhaustion in Christian living can lead us to go into protection mode. When we are weary, when we lose heart, when we encounter trial after trial, when we meet one more creepy, crusty, nasty, or angry Christian, we might be tempted to want to opt out and to retire from the race, as it were, to withdraw and to put a wall around ourselves and uh, to pretend all of that isn't there and just to get on with it. Well, I want to say this gently. If you're ever tempted to do that, remember this. This is not the place for rest. This is not the place for retirement. This side of the sun, being a Christian, is the business of living the Christian life come what may, bring what it may. It's true that there remaineth a rest for the people of God, but that rest is in glory. It is not here. Sadly, it is not here. And so the writer encourages us to get ourselves together. Now, of course, the words that he uses here come from somewhere. They come from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 and 4. And in that chapter in Isaiah, the prophet proclaims the coming action of God on behalf of his people. Here's what the prophet says. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, quote, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. He will come to save you. Maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Because maybe in your Christian journey, you've come to a place of spiritual exhaustion or frustration or or you're dispirited, you're depressed perhaps. And you need to know that God will act for you. He will act for you. Your God will come. Your God will come. And when he comes, he will deal with enemies and he will deal with evil and he will deal with sin, but he will save you this morning. He will save you. Take courage from that. And then the writer goes on to say, And there's something practical you can do right now. Make straight paths for your feet. Those words come from Proverbs chapter 4, where it says this, Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet. And be steadfast in all your ways. 
Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your feet from evil. This is God's word to us this morning. Keep on in the race. Keep to the track. Keep on with the way that God has put before you as an individual. God has tailored your life for you. Only you go through what you go through in your life. Only you face the challenges you will face in your life. And he's saying this, keep in view the way that God has set for you. The path that your obedience takes you in life. The matters in which you, only you, will have to face the challenge of living for God and making decisions in a Godward direction and having your mind and your life ordered towards God rather than towards other things. Don't be distracted. Don't be pulled away from this path of duty. That's the first thing he says to us. And then the second thing he says to us is that we should be clear about our duty. He says this, uh, pursue. I prefer that word. It's an older word, but most of the modern scholars as well prefer it as the translation of the Greek. Pursue peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue. Earnestly pursue. Chase after. Run after it. Be wholehearted. Go for it. Go for your duty, he says. And here's your duty as he spells it out. Your duty is towards people and towards God. Look how he breaks it down here. Pursue peace with all people. Now, it goes without saying, doesn't it, that Christians should get on with one another. We don't always get on with one another, but it surely stands to reason that we should be trying to get on with one another and doing all we can to do that. After all, God, we're told in chapter 13, God is a God of peace. We know that Christ came himself, and he is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He reconciles us to God, and he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jew and the Gentile, and we're urged to be, in the Bible, at peace among ourselves. All of that's true, and all of that's said all over the place in the New Testament. But do you see what's novel here? What is new here is this. This text says that we are to be at peace with all people. He's just said in verse 11 that peace is the fruit of righteousness. In other words, if you're going to live a righteous life, a a life that pleases God, one of the things that should characterize that life is that you should live at peace with all people. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, seek peace and pursue it, he says. You think about this. It's through lack of peace that wars and conflicts and disorders rock the world. It's through lack of peace that churches divide. It's through lack of peace that people are, uh, are damaged. It is through peace, on the other hand, that people are not hurt, not abused, not defrauded, not injured. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, 
as we have the opportunity, we are to be useful. We are to benefit everybody. In doing so, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 10 that we should avoid giving unnecessary offense either to Jews or Gentiles. Now, it's interesting that he should use this word to pursue, chase after this, because it doesn't come naturally to be at peace with all people. We think of people we know who are not Christians, and we think of some of these people, and we think, how can I pursue peace with those people who manifestly dislike the fact that I'm a Christian? And of course, there's some truth to all of that, isn't there, in the Bible itself. If you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted, Paul says. If you were of the world, says Jesus, the world would love you, but you're not of the world, therefore the world hates you. And again, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. All that is true. But what is also important concerns the question of what does the world hate you for? That's the important thing. That's what's being addressed here. If we're contentious, hypocritical, bad-tempered, if we're gossips, backbiters, bitter, if we're lazy, malcontents, or arrogant, we will invariably stir up resentment, negativity, and so on. Any bad feeling we incite in that way will not be persecution. You will not be able to say, they're persecuting me. They're actually just treating you the way you deserve, the way you've invited them to treat you. When it says pursue peace, it's not only speaking about peace as the fruit of righteousness, but also as the fruit of love. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor, love our enemy, as well as to love one another. And to live at peace with people in the world involves doing them no harm and wronging them in any way. It is to be kind and gentle with them. It is to be able to interact in a generous, friendly, sincere way with them. Being at peace with people in the world does not mean complicity in evil, nor does it mean our agreeing with their error. But it does mean loving them like Jesus. I said that earlier in verse 11, we see peaceableness as the fruit of righteousness. John Owen, one of the great teachers of the church, parses what that means out for us. He puts it like this, to wrong no one, to give everyone their due, to do to all as we would have them do to us. That's what this peaceableness is about. He goes on to say that it isn't enough that we hurt no one, or defraud no one, or injure no one. It is also required of us, quote, that in our station in life and calling, according to our circumstances and our abilities, that we be useful to all in all the duties of our spiritual life, our love, and our generosity. Pursue peace. Go after it. 
peace with everyone. That means with all sorts of people. It includes the worst people you can think of, your enemies, your persecutors, your in-laws. This kind of spirit is consistent with the gospel itself in that it is offered to all sorts of people. That's what Jesus means. We're to be at peace with all sorts of people, just the way the gospel is offered to all sorts of people. To be contentious, harsh, provocative, to keep a record of wrongs, and to bring them up again and again and again is contrary to the spirit of the gospel. But if we pursue peace with all people, we will have a clear conscience before God. Should we be persecuted, we will know that their persecution has nothing to do with us being obnoxious and everything to do with us being Christian. Everyone. I imagine someone is saying, well, does that mean believers and unbelievers? Yes, it does. Does that mean people of a different religion? Yes, it does. Are we not compromising the gospel if we live at peace with such as these? No, we aren't. One of the great Puritan scholars, William Gouge, answers this question like this. He talks about there being a place of shared concern where people of different religions, that's the illustration that he uses, people of different religions agree not to show violence or hurt to one another and to help each other out if either one is wronged. Now, we have an interest in that, don't we? In, in just, if I can just apply this to our American situation, where, where one of the first things in our Constitution is freedom of speech. If I'm serious about freedom of speech because I want it to preach the gospel— and I wanted to articulate the things that I don't like about society or whatever it may be, if I'm really serious about freedom of speech for me, I must equally be eager to defend freedom of speech for other people who are saying things that I think are absolutely rubbish. And there are such people. And it is rubbish. But I want to defend surely the right of them to speak it. Because in our society, that is a freedom we still have and that we value very preciously. I think of those words of Martin Niemöller, pastor in Germany, uh, when the Hitler regime was taking root. He famously wrote these words. They came for the socialists. I was not a socialist, so I said nothing. They came for the trades unionists. I was not a trades unionist, so I said nothing. They came for the Jews. I was not a Jew, so I said nothing. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to say anything. What Gouge calls shared concerns— these are things we share with people we don't agree with. We, we very sharply disagree with. But they are shared concerns. And pursuing peace with all people requires us to recognize that and to do what we can 
to look out for people when they are wronged. Well, I imagine someone else might have a problem with this pursuing peace business. Perhaps you've read Matthew chapter 10 and Jesus' words saying that he came not to bring peace but a sword. How does that apply to this question? Well, it's important to remember the context in which our Lord there is talking not about the end in the sense of the purpose or the point or the goal of his coming, but he's talking about the consequence of his coming. There's a difference. Actually, the purpose, the point, the goal, and the end of his coming was to bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He came to make peace by the blood of his cross. But the very fact that there was the blood of his cross shows that by his coming, by the coming of the light into the world, the light shone into the darkness, and the darkness reacted against it with hostility and Men crucified the Lord of glory. He came to bring peace. We go into the world to take peace into the world because we are the representatives of the Prince of Peace. But the darkness will not necessarily warm to it or value it or applaud it. That doesn't matter. So long as we keep to our duty towards people to pursue peace with everybody, without compromising, but to show peace, to do peace, pursue peace with everybody. Now, that word to pursue applies to the next command. This is our duty towards God. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What's at stake here? Notice what's at stake. It's the beatific vision. Why are we looking forward to heaven? What do we expect when we get to heaven? We expect to see God. Not with physical eyes. You can't see God with physical eyes. God's invisible. It's not a material seeing. Uh, John Owen calls it an intellectual seeing. It's impossible for the finite to comprehend the infinite. So we couldn't take in God anyway, even if he were visible. And yet, we're told in the Bible that seeing God is the sum of our future blessedness. And we will see God, we're told, in the face of Jesus Christ. He has seen me has seen the Father. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what does the text say? It says, without holiness we shall not see God. Does that mean seeing God is contingent on us being holy? Surely seeing God is ultimately dependent on our being a believer and on the work of Christ? Of course it does. But here's the thing. Whereas our faith in Christ and the work of Christ for us seals our redemption, holiness prepares us, prepares us for the vision of God who is holy. 
God has given to us means. Uh, There's an old hymn that says, There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, and advocate with God, pointing us to Christ in His death, the work of the Holy Spirit, and Christ's advocacy. These are the things that get us to the place where we shall see God. And the hymn ends with these words, these, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night shall dwell in everlasting light through the eternal love. Our goal is to move from the ignorance of now to the sight of them, the faith of now to the vision of God. And holiness prepares us for that. It is the due preparation that we need to be ready for that vision of the Holy One of Israel, the God who calls us to Himself. Peter, in his letter, says this, As he who has called you is holy, be holy in yourselves, in all your conduct, since it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Here's our duty, a duty to God, the duty to our fellow human beings. That's the way in which we pursue our journey. That's the path that we're to take towards the goal. The goal is seeing God. We shall say more of this. I think in, in the future we'll say more of that because it's perhaps new to some of you. But this is the direction we're going. And as we follow Jesus, who's gone ahead of us along this course, whatever this course may be, and it's different for everyone in this room and everyone listening to us, nonetheless, that course has been mapped out by our loving Heavenly Father. Nothing comes across our path that our loving Heavenly Father cannot turn to good and use for His glory and your good. And we must get up tomorrow morning feeling all droopy and wobbly and get back on the track. And there'll be grace God won't give you grace today for what's coming tomorrow, but He'll give you grace tomorrow for what turns up tomorrow. Isn't that great? And He'll do that every day until the shadows flee away, the day breaks, and we see Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would strengthen us by Your indwelling Holy Spirit. We thank You that You have given to us Uh, the ability by faith to see truth, which means to see you. We pray that you sustain us by this word of exhortation today. As we go back out to whatever this week holds, Lord, we don't know what it holds, but we know who holds tomorrow, and we follow hard after Christ with his help and his name. Amen.